2 Timothy in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to your church, to, its, to these hearers. That you would turn on the lights for us so that we would see the truth of your word, that your spirit would be at work helping us understand what it means that we're under the authority of your word and therefore the job of your church is to proclaim your word. I pray that as we look at this this morning, as we talk about the doctrine of Scripture alone, that you would be exalted in this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on October 5th, excuse me, sorry, On October 1st of this week, which will be Thursday, I suppose, it'll be 15 years since I was first called to be a pastor of a local church. Uh, That church was River Lakes Community Church. I was called there as a high school and college pastor 15 years ago this Thursday. Isn't that crazy? For those who were there, some of you were there. You thought they were crazy then, you still believe it. And the Lord blessed me with... uh, privilege of being someone who preaches his word and teaches his word to others. Lord blessed me with that privilege 15 years ago. And nine years ago, I was blessed to participate with the team in planting Sovereign Grace Church. Now, it will be nine years since we went public this January. But nine years ago, this month of September, actually the seventh of this month, would have been when we first started gathering a group of folks to talk about the church plant and, and to begin it. My wife and I and our, and our two kids were given the great privilege of gathering with a, really a small group of folks, about 28 or 30 of us, um, to start this church. And I remember when I first started the church, I was being asked by others, not really by the people in the congregation that were helping us start it, because I think they understood what we were going to be about, but, but by my friends in ministry all over the place, I was being asked the question, what was your, what's your plan for planting the church? How are you going to do it? I even went to a church planning boot camp. Went to like three of them, I think. And they're a week long, and how are you going to do it? What's your goal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, to plant a church. Well, but how are you going to, who's your, who's your target group? Well, the people in Bakersfield. But who specifically? Whoever the Lord our God calls when I preach the word. That's who our target group is. And we had these conversations. And I was asked, what's your plan? And I remember saying that my plan was, well, I'm going to, preach the word. He just kind of looked at me. What? Yeah, I'm going to preach the word. 
what's the rest of the plan? Well, our team and I are going to pray that God blesses his word as I preach it. Anything else? Yeah, well, well, uh, the rest of the team, they're going to speak the word to one another that the Lord is blessing as we're praying as I preach it. That's the plan. We're just going to trust the Lord to work. And I'm going to basically preach the word by going slowly and systematically through books of the Bible. In other words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a book of the Bible and I'm going to explain it to them. And then I'm going to rebuke the proud and encourage the poor in spirit. Anything else? Yeah, I'm going to train other young guys to preach the word too. So that's all you're going to do. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to trust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 too. When I was asked what our strategy was to grow the church evangelistically, to help believers grow through various struggles in life, to develop new leaders, I responded the same way. I'm going to preach the word. I still remember the looks and the comments from friends. I I remember, that will never work. That'll never work. Unbelievers will never come to that. People looking for a church are interested in things like kids' ministries and a rocking worship service, not long sermons through texts of the Bible. I was told these things flat out. Preaching won't help people with the things that plague them. You're not being practical. I had these conversations largely with pastors. Just so you know, this wasn't a conversation with the average churchgoer or an unbeliever on the street. This is a conversation I had with pastors. I'd run into unbelievers who I'd invite to the church. They'd say, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to start in the book of Romans, and I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to teach it. How long? I don't know. Maybe years. Really? Yeah. You want to come? Sure. I've never been in a church where they do that, where they teach the book of the Bible. So I never heard that from unbelievers. And I didn't hear it from church-going folk. I heard it from pastors. So why did I approach ministry the way we did? And, 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 and really, why are we as elders and as a congregation so committed to this approach to ministry? And, and the answer is because of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. Look there. Paul is charging Timothy. He has sent Timothy to Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is a mess. They have a couple of elders who've gone off into heresy. And Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to clean up the mess. Appoint new elders. Get the church set back in order. And then Paul starts to charge Timothy. I want you to understand some things as a minister of the gospel, Timothy. As the pastor there for now. And listen to what he charges him. I charge you. Here's this charge, this command. Here's the thing Paul wants to hear. I charge you. Now listen to the nature of this charge. In the presence of God and of the Messiah, Jesus. That's a pretty significant charge, isn't it? I'm not only charging you, but I'm charging you in the presence of God and in the presence of the Messiah, Jesus. Who is, now who's the Messiah, Jesus? Who is to judge the living and the dead, So I charge you in their presence, but I charge you in the presence of the one who's to judge the living and the dead 
and by his appearing, his coming, and his kingdom. Think about the weightiness. These are the qualifications, if you will, that he gives to the charge. This is everything, isn't it? I charge you in the presence of the creator and savior, the only Lord of heaven and earth, the one who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing when he comes and his kingdom, I charge you in their presence, under their judgment, in the face of their coming and kingdom. That's a pretty significant charge, isn't it? Now, what's the charge? What does he say to him? Second verse. Start a rocking worship service. No. <laughs> what? Get robotic lighting and smoke machines. No. How about a great children's ministry? Preach the word in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season when it's popular be ready when people want to hear it and be ready out of season when people don't want to hear it be instant that word ready is to be instant be there on the spot you are johnny on the spot preaching the word whether people want to hear it or people don't because that's what i'm charging you to do in front of the god of the universe preach the word reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching Keep at it. Be patient. You're going to want to be patient because you're going to often be preaching the word and even as you're preaching it, as your people are wandering off and you look out at them, you're going to, as if it is, see the birds descend upon the congregation and steal the seeds of the word right before they hit their ears. Preach the word with complete patience and teaching. Don't stop. Be ready whether they want to hear it or don't want to hear it. Keep doing it. That's why every time I walk up here, I don't know if you see me and we're singing and you'll see me look down and start to pray, and I'm praying pretty much the same thing every week. Lord, let me, pr- let me preach as a dying man to dying men. Let me preach as if I will never have these people hear from me ever again after this moment, as if we were all going to die right now. Let me preach with my resignation in my hand, ready to walk out, because all I want to do is attend to your word and make it drop heavy on these people change them i can't do anything all i can do is trust your spirit if i preach the word that you will work and then i got to keep at it week after week month after month year after year until i'm dead knowing that in some small way god will work by the word to bring people to salvation and then he'll work by the word to grow you in holiness and though you make it into your life and realize that all you've ever made is nothing but small beginnings in holiness i have done my job what i was called to do to preach the word Further, Paul promised us in 2 Timothy 3, look up there in 2 Timothy 3, and verse 14, as he tells Timothy, but as for you, continue, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, what, what sacred writings are you talking about? Largely the Old Testament. And what are the sacred writings able to do? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the word makes you wise for salvation. Why would I want to do anything else other than preach the word if the word is able to make you wise for salvation? In Christ Jesus. It goes on. All scripture. All scripture. And I don't think he's just talking about the Old Testament here because Paul actually quotes from the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and calls it Scripture. In other words, Paul's aware of the Gospel of Luke and is quoting from it, calling it Scripture in 1 Timothy, which is a previous book to this. So Paul, I don't think, is just referring to the Old Testament, though I think he's largely referring to the Old Testament. But all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's theopneustos. It's, it's, come, it's, it's come from his very breath. God has breathed it out. We call it inspired by God. As he spoke, you speak and your breath comes out. You feel your breath when you speak. He spoke it out. It's all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now here's the thing. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation and the scriptures are able to sanctify you and the scriptures are able to even make you competent. The man of God, I think, is a technical term largely for the pastor to make you competent, equipped for every good work. So the, the scriptures do everything from bringing people to salvation to growing them into holiness to preparing them for ministry. What else would I do as a pastor then than follow this charge to preach the word? I, I would be nuts if I didn't, wouldn't I? The word does it all. The word does it all. Luther talked about this. You know, he, I don't remember the direct quote, but I was reading Luther talking about himself, Martin Luther and the Protestant reformer talking about himself and Melanchthon and how the word of God through the printing press of Gutenberg was spreading all over Europe and the Reformation was breaking out across Europe. And Luther says, essentially, um, that, that, uh, that Melanchthon and I sat in the garden drinking beer and the word did all the work. <laughs> in other words, he's, he's being humorous, but his point is, he didn't do anything. He taught the word and got it out there and the word was powerful. The scriptures can do all this and we're commanded to teach them. Thus I would say to you, I, I, and not only that this approach to pastoral ministry is my preference. This isn't a preference issue. It's that all pastors should approach ministry this way. Pastors are charged and commanded to preach the word of God by the word of God. That's what the word of God commands us to do. Somebody got a text. That probably tells you to preach the word. We are commanded... We are commanded to feed the sheep, aren't we? We're commanded to make an open statement of the truth, to proclaim the word of the Lord which remains forever, to guard the good deposit, to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This is our charge and it comes from Scripture. Now I'm rehearsing all this to drive home the point that Scripture tells pastors how to do ministry and Scripture is our authority. 
Now, I don't need to pick up the latest ministry book, which documents all the cool things that are happening at another church that gives me all their exciting anecdotes and statistics, and then tells me that if I join in the same campaign and buy their book and label it and do their whole thing, that somehow that's going to guide us on how to really see people get saved and grow in their faith, etc. My charge is clear. It's three simple words. Preach the word. Or as Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And the reason I should follow what I'm told in Scripture is because the Bible is my authority. Don't understand me. I'm not saying I have nothing to learn from other pastors. I'm not saying that. I am not saying I do not need to be trained. I've spent many fruitful years learning the Word and how to teach it from other pastors and scholars. I have learned immense amounts about how to faithfully shepherd the church from other men of God in the church. What I'm saying is, is the basic charge is clear. Preach the word with urgency, whether it is popular or unpopular, with complete patience and teaching. Clear. I don't need to learn a new methodology. I need to learn how to do more faithfully what the Lord has given me to do. The Bible is the pastor's authority. It tells us what to do. And the Bible is the church's authority in all of life and doctrine as well. Now, when we talk about authority, I want you to consider the root word of authority. What is it? Author. Author. The Bible is our authority because we believe God is its author. We believe the Lord of heaven and earth spoke the word. We believe all scriptures breathed out by God. God spoke out these words. As Peter told us, men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus, God's word is infallible. What do I mean by infallible? It is not able to err. And it is inerrant. What do I mean by that? It contains no error because God cannot lie or err. And since this word is authored by God, since it's authored by God, it is our authority. We can sum up really our doctrine of scripture with with an acronym. Are you ready? Much of our doctrine of scripture can be summed up with an acronym SCAN. Sufficiency, you ready? S. Clarity, authority, and necessity. What do I mean by that? The sufficiency of scripture, it provides us all we need to understand Christian doctrine in life. It's sufficient for Christian life doctrine. Now, when we say the scripture is sufficient, we don't mean it's sufficient for doing algebra or geometry. We mean it's sufficient for Christian doctrine and life. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, what did he do? He leaned on the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and he quoted it back to Satan and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, separating joint and marrow, piercing the heart. The word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for wit which it is sent forth. So the word is sufficient. The word is further, it's clear. That's the C, the word is clear. It's able to be understood. Not all things in the word are equally clear, but overall it's clear. Okay, some scholars say the word is perspicuous. But that is a very unclear way to say clear. (laughs) So, the word is clear. It's got clarity. The word is our authority. That's the A. So sufficient, it's clear, it's authoritative. The word of God stands above all else. 
and the N and scan, the word of God is necessary. The word of God is necessary for people to come to saving faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. See, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He goes on in verse 17 to say, For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It's necessary. So this morning, I'm primarily addressing the A in scan, the authority issue. Authority. Historically, Protestants talk about our authority as sola. The phrase that Protestants used was a Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. We believe that Scripture, as Protestants, we believe that Scripture is our ultimate authority. Everything else stands in submission to Scripture. We don't mean that there aren't any subsidiary authorities, that there aren't things worth listening to. We just mean that those are all under Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority. We do not believe in the Bible and tradition as two co-equal authorities, as is true in Rome. We do not believe in the Bible and the teaching magisterium of the church, or what you guys know is summed up as the Pope, but there's actually a whole group of cardinals, and they're called the teaching magisterium of the church, the cardinals, the bishops, and the bishops and the Pope. Together are the authoritative interpreters of the Scripture and the tradition, and so they have somewhere between a two- and three-source view of authority. We believe in the Bible as our authority because it's God's Word This idea that the Bible is God's word and our ultimate authority has long been the view of Christ's church. Long been the view of Christ's church. I don't want you to come to the conclusion that some one day in in, you know 1517, on October 31st of 1517, this German monk named Martin Luther in the town of Wittenberg, teaching at the university, who was a particularly self-afflicted monk who liked to drink beer, was sitting around thinking to himself, gosh. I think we should just start to teach the Bible alone. That is not how it happened, folks. He did not just make that doctrine up whole cloth. Some of us seem to think that the Reformation was some kind of restoration movement. In other words, that somehow the gospel was lost from somewhere in the early two to 300s A.D., and it finally got recaptured in the 1500s A.D. That's restoration movement. That's called a cult That isn't Christianity. That isn't how it happened. Luther didn't come along one day and make up some new doctrine. The doctrine of sola scriptura, while we never called it that, the belief that the Bible alone is our authority is long held in the church. You can see it in the Old Testament prophets and Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 29, at that point it said what? The things that are revealed belong to you. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to you and to your children forever. What's he talking about? He's talking about the first five books of the Bible. The prophets are constantly relying upon the Bible. Jesus is relying on the Bible. Jesus. Think of it. He relies on the text as his authority. When Satan tries to tempt him, where does Jesus appeal to his authority? He doesn't say, Peter... 
you're the first pope, tell me what to do. He goes back to the Bible. Submits himself to the prophets he sent. The apostles submit to the scripture. The early church submitted to the scripture. The church throughout the centuries submitted to the scripture. When in the second century, when Irenaeus is battling the Gnostics, Irenaeus appeals to the word of God and says the Gnostics have this other tradition they say comes from the apostles, but the only tradition we follow is a tradition written in the scriptures. Second century, one of the church fathers. That continues throughout, but as history goes, what happens in institutions is sin creeps in. And over time, some of the bishops, some of the cardinals, some of the popes went astray, and eventually many, many, many pastors in the church, many priests in the church, were teaching or appealing to authority other than Scripture. Now, there was no definitive decision on the part of the Roman Catholic Church that it's the Bible and tradition and the teaching magisterium of the church until post-Reformation. Do you guys know that? Here's what happened. Martin Luther saw doctrinal perversions in the Roman Catholic Church. And he saw them among the Holy Roman Emperor. And he challenged the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, and the Holy Roman Emperor regarding their doctrines. And when he did it, he appealed to the Bible. At the Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther was being tried for heresy in front of the cardinals and bishops and in front of the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. You're a monk from a little town in Germany, and you're standing before the the most powerful leader in the world. And he's there. And they asked him to recant of his writings, and here's how he responded. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me. Amen. Luther was not opposed to everything church councils and popes had taught throughout history. Luther was opposed to anything they taught that was not consistent with the Bible. As a result of this, the Reformation was launched. Sola Scriptura became what was called the formal cause of the Reformation. Material cause is sola fide, faith alone. Material means the substance of the Reformation. The thing they were fighting over was the doctrine of faith, justification by faith alone, which we'll get to in a few weeks. But the thing that they, was the formal cause of it. In other words, the, the formal thing underneath it, what's the structure, the authority upon which, or source of authority upon which you're appealing in the argument was sola scriptura. Do we appeal only to the Bible or do we also appeal to councils and popes? Who do we appeal to? The Protestants said, we're appealing only to the Bible. And that's what the word Protestant, what's the root word of the word Protestant? Protest. You guys ever think about that? The very faith that you claim to be a part of is a, is a faith named as we're in protest. What are you protesting? You're not repo- protesting the fact that the Pope wears a goofy hat. That's not what you're protesting. You're not protesting their, their particular 
worship services and the fact that you don't like the aesthetics or, the, or, or, or whatever of them? Who cares about that stuff? That isn't important. If that's all you're in protest, that you just don't like the way they run their worship services, and that's all you care about, go back to Rome. There's no reason for you to be a schismatic in constant, perpetual protest against Rome if that's what you think is all that matters. We protest over five doctrines. That's why we protest. There are five doctrines over which we protest. You know what they're not? They're not the Trinity. They're not Jesus the God-man. They're not any of those. We're five doctrines we protest over. What are they? Sola gratia, grace alone. I'm going to define that in the coming weeks. Sola fide, faith alone. I'm going to define that in the coming weeks. Sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. We'll go over that as well. Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And fifth, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Those are the five things the Protestants protested over. Those are the things they wanted to reform. That's what they call reformation. Reform the church around. They didn't want to leave Rome. They wanted to reform Rome. Our desire is not to build a polemic against Rome and just beat Rome up. Our desire is to pray that they would come back to the gospel. We'll look at those over the next five weeks, but today we're looking at sola scriptura. Scripture as our authority is foundational to our debate with Rome. Why? Because when we have different authorities that we appeal to, we end up with different doctrines, don't we? Have you ever had a debate with somebody and you're discussing something with them and you say, I think this is true, and they say they think this is true, and then at the end of the day, if you don't come back to what's the source of authority for our argument, you're never going to get anywhere. You just talk past each other. You ever notice that? And that's what's happening here. Sola Scriptura is the formal cause of the Reformation because at the end of the day, we have to go back to what's our source of authority. Otherwise, we're going to argue all day long and, make, and get nowhere until we all agree that there's one source of authority that we can appeal to that we agree upon. We won't agree upon our doctrines. We appeal to Scripture alone. Rome appeals to Scripture and tradition and the teaching magisterium of the church The Protestant reformers were appealing to the Bible as their authority. When the Roman Catholic Church would respond with a pope or a council, the reformers would also quote popes and councils and demonstrate their contradictions, and then they would turn to Scripture and say that we bow only to its authority. The frustration they often had with Calvin was he could outquote them with regard to the church fathers and the councils. But then he would say, look at the ways they contradict, and he would just quote them by memory. Point out their contradiction, say, this is why we bow only to Scripture. Where these guys are consistent with Scripture, we accept what they say. Where they're not consistent with Scripture, we reject what they say. Finally, in the 1560s, in what's called the Counter-Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church responded with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the first time in the 1560s, I want you to hear this, in the 1560s, where for the first time, the Roman Catholic Church codified the fact that they have an official two-source view of authority. In other words, the reason I don't want you to think the doctrine of Scripture alone was a creation of Martin Luther out of thin air is because the church, the Roman Catholic Church, did not have an official doctrine of two sources of authority until the 1560s. And what Luther and Calvin and the others were Claiming was, we're being more consistent with the history of the church, and you've run off into perversion. You know, they wouldn't even call the Roman Catholics Catholics. 
They'd call them papists. They'd say, we're the real Catholics. We're the ones trying to be consistent with the Bible and the history of the church. They wouldn't even recognize this discussion about Catholic or Christian. Are you a Catholic or a Christian? They would recognize, what do you mean are you Catholic or a Christian? Do you believe in the Trinity and Jesus? Then, then, we're, then we're all Christians. Now the question, or we're all Catholics. Now the question is, are you a good Catholic or are you a erring Catholic? Which kind of Catholic are you? That's their discussion. And if you're a papist, you're an erring Catholic, one that follows the Pope. Now, when I go down this road, many evangelicals are happy for me to go after the Roman Catholics adding, for adding traditions of the church and the teaching magisterium of the scripture. It's easy. It's like low-hanging fruit, isn't it? This pope, if you've been alive long enough, is contradicting the last pope who's contradicting the pope before him. And you live long enough to see all these popes contradict each other, and you go, what's the story? What do you guys really believe? And it's low-hanging fruit. And it's easy for us as evangelicals to go and grab the low-hanging fruit and say, listen, we've defeated your view. But here's the thing. What if Protestants misunderstood the doctrine of sola scriptura? What if we misunderstood it? See, it's easy to see as the Pope comes into America to look at the spectacle of the Pope and the abuses of Rome and rail against them. That's easy to do. It's much more difficult when we start to look at, have we perverted the doctrine of Scripture alone? And as a result of that, perverted other doctrines. That takes a little bit more self-examination. It's a little bit more dangerous territory for us, isn't it? It's always easy to point out the speck in someone else's eye without first pulling out the log in your own. Always. Because it's more dangerous to look at the log in your eye. Because when you get to the mirror, that log smacks the mirror and hits you in the eye. You know, right? Okay. So let's start with, let me give you three denials about Sola Scriptura and three affirmations. You're like, gosh, you're just getting to your points. Yeah. They should go quick. Three denials about Sola Scriptura and three affirmations. In good, in good church History, fashion, I want to give you denials and affirmations. Whenever they did doctrinal statements, by the way, throughout the history of the church, they always did affirmations and denials. We affirm this, we affirm this. Therefore, we deny this and we deny this. In our current century, you never deny anything. We affirm this. Well, I affirm this. Well, that's good too. That's okay. You know, we all be nice. Okay? <clears throat> all right. So we have affirmations and denials. All right? Let's start with the denials. Let's start there. Let's, let's start out being negative so I can end on a positive note and you can all feel better about me. Okay. First, sola scriptura is not nuda scriptura. What? When we say scripture alone, we don't mean the scripture nakedly. Here, here's what I mean by that. Those who hold to sola scriptura in the Protestant tradition tend to think scripture alone means me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. That's what they tend to think. And so it's like, you know what? There's nobody who's ever gotten this right, but thank God I came along, and I finally, me, the Holy Spirit, we finally got this thing worked out. That's not what Sola Scriptura is. We fail to listen to the teachers of the Word in our own day and in history, and thus we end up with a kind of radical individualism, which is not Scripture alone as our authority, but it ends up being me alone as the authority. When I come into contact with great scholars who all say one thing about the Bible, and then I think it says another thing, my tendency is to believe me and not them. 
That's pride. What if you're wrong and they're right? See, the Protestant reformers, when they said sola scriptura, didn't mean my personal interpretation alone. They meant the interpretation of the great scholars of the history of the church together of scripture alone. Not me by myself. We see those around us and those who came before us as fallible and sinful, and we wonder how we could ever trust their interpretation of Scripture, and so we interpret Scripture in historical isolation. We reject historical and contemporary interpreters of Scripture, and we ignore the creeds and confessions they wrote to our detriment. We think the Reformers were denying tradition altogether. They were not denying tradition altogether. The Reformers were quite big fans of tradition. They just thought tradition had a proper place under the Bible, not next to it or above it. They believed the tradition was written down in Scripture. Further, they believed the church often got the Scripture right throughout history. They often appealed to other people's interpretations of the Scriptures. Luther would say, listen to what Augustine said about this. Augustine's right. He's got this text right. The Reformers believed we would be poorly served to reject the declarations of early church councils. So, for example, the Reformers accepted the church councils like Nicaea and Chalcedon and, and, and several others. So they accepted the doctrines of the Trinity and Jesus as the God-man. They didn't think we need to redo all that. But these faithful men got this right in accord with Scripture so when, we, when they were saying scriptures are authority alone, they do not mean that we do away with teachers and historic doctrines and all that's left is me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. That's not what they meant. Okay, so sola scriptura is not new to scripture. Second denial, sola scriptura is not scripture read through the lens of our current cultural proclivities. That's a long sentence, isn't it? It is not scripture read through the lens of our current cultural proclivities. What do I mean by that? We need to read scripture through the lens of its own historical and cultural location. These men were writing to real people in a real historical location and situation, and they had a real culture and a real language they used to do that. We need to try to our best to understand that. They weren't first writing. When you see the word you in the Bible, don't stop and think, that's me, that's not you, not you. It's the you the author's talking to, Okay? Once you understand what he's saying to them, then you can say from there, what's the Holy Spirit now saying to me? See, we can't just read into the Bible whatever we want in this book. That can be a real problem in the American church. We tend to read the Bible through the lens of our own culture. Every culture does this, by the way. This is a constant fight. It's when you give into it, it's called syncretism. You've mixed two things. So we take texts that say things that are not in vogue in our culture and we stand in judgment over them as if we're their authority. Paul calls this standing over the word and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You stand over it and you push it down like I'm its authority. So when it says things culturally we don't like, rather than saying maybe I need to change, we think maybe I just need to reinterpret this thing. Further, we just pull texts apart and read them however they convenience us. Think about how we use Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you see a man tattoo that on his chest, walk into the UFC ring and say, I can beat the crud out of whoever stands in front of me through Christ who gives me strength. 
That's what Paul meant. Yeah, exactly. That's what he was going after when he wrote to the church at Philippi. So he was thinking, so Philippians, when you're walking into the Colosseum, you can defeat the lion. That's not what he was saying. Melanie understands that's ridiculous, right? You're going to get eaten alive. You know what? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about I can be content in any circumstance whether I'm without, whether I have or I don't have. Whether I'm in lack or my need has been supplied, I can be content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's not just applying it to every situation. Go read the context. We totally ignore context and original meaning and read it through the lens of our own desired outcome. So a commitment to sola scriptura is a commitment of the church to study the word in its original languages and context and to work hard to understand it rightly and then to submit to its authority whether we like it or not. R.C. Sproul once said that the way he grows in sanctification, you ready for his, his tool for growing sanctification? I thought it was very helpful. He says, I read through the Bible, and whatever I don't like, I highlight and realize that's an area I need to grow in sanctification. <laughs> Sola Scriptura does not mean that we get to rip verses out of context, like little fortune cookies, sayings, and then apply them to whatever works for us, or we get to cut and paste our Bible, take out what we don't like, keep what we do like, emphasize what we like, don't emphasize or de-emphasize what we don't like, and then create our own designer Jesus. It's not what Sola Scriptura is. Okay, third, denial. Sola Scriptura is not Scripture plus a new wind of the Spirit. Did you guys hear that? It is not Scripture plus a new wind of the Spirit. There's a tendency today to divide the Word and the Spirit. There's a tendency to do that. As if the Spirit is not speaking through His Word. You see, the Spirit gave us the Word, but now He's doing something new. He's got a fresh message for us. We can't box Him in. Of course, no one wants to ask, are we boxing in the Spirit of God when we define His work according to what He has said in His Word? Did the Spirit make his own box? He's told us who he is and what he does in his word. Are we boxing him in when we believe what he said? Further, no one seems to want to ask, why are all these new moves of the Spirit so qualitatively different, qualitatively different than what he did in the Scripture, and how come they always happen in faraway places where I hear about them through a giant game of telephone? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Oh my gosh, somebody raised the dead over there. Did you see it? Nope. Did he see it? Nope. I heard about it. Some faraway place. Any confirmation? Nope. I know, I know. I sound like I'm denying the Spirit can do whatever he wants. I'm not. The Spirit, I just wanted you to hear the phrase. The Spirit can do whatever he wants. Got it? I'm not denying that. In fact, I'm affirming it. Affirmation. The Spirit can do whatever he wants. Got it? What I'm denying is that the Spirit will do things that contradict what he has already said he wants. Got it? Okay, thank you. All right, so I'm denying my subjective experiences, in other words. I'm denying your subjective experience, and I'm denying the subjective experience that I hear from others. And how am I denying them? I'm denying them all as authoritative. I want you to hear that. I'm not saying your experience didn't happen. Didn't happen. I'm saying your experience is not an authority for you or for me. The Bible is. Your experience, my experience, the experience of others submits to the text. 
Scripture is our authority and everything submits to that. That's why Paul can say, let God be true and every man a liar. We must subject all our experiences, stories, and ideas under the authority of Scripture. God told me, in quote, is not a trump card that you get to play with people. Well, God told me. Oh, okay, conversation's over. I guess there's nothing to say. What did God tell you? He told me that I should do this very stupid and foolish, and foolish thing. Really, he told you that? Yes. Okay, well, I guess I can't say anything to you then, because God told you. What about the fact the Bible says don't do that? That's not my Jesus. Again, it's not a trump card you get to play. You don't get to have your own Jesus. You know that? He, he isn't like Plato that you just make your own little thing out of. Okay? Oh, there's a little Jesus can I got. Now I'm going to build my own Messiah at home. Okay? That's not how it works. That's how pagans treat their gods. They get wood, they go out and they carve a god the way they want the god to be, and they worship him. You don't get to do that with Jesus. Jesus was a real historical person who really lived and died and rose from the dead and who gave us a Bible telling us all about himself. We are not pagans. Anything short of that, submitting to the word is not sola scriptura, but scripture plus my cultural ideas, my personal thoughts, my private revelations. Listen, if you want to add to the Bible, go back to Rome. At least in Rome, they have a teaching magisterium of the church that can keep some of your wild ideas in check. All right, now my affirmations about sola scriptura. My affirmations. Here are the three real quick. One, sola scriptura, scriptura, scripture alone, means that Everything dealing with doctrine and practice in the Christian life is under Scripture's authority. I think I've probably already made that pretty clear. The author of Scripture is God, thus we follow what he says. So the Protestants spoke of Sola Scriptura in this way. I'm going to quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. They say it well. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, Faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of spirit or traditions of men. So the Bible is our authority. Now it's true the Bible doesn't address every question. Like the Bible doesn't tell me how to set up a non-profit corporation, does it? It doesn't even tell me how to date. You know the Bible doesn't talk about courtship or dating. The church needs to be a little quieter about those things. The Bible does give you a couple things. Don't marry an unbeliever. Gives you some general wisdom. The early Protestants, though, gave us ways to deal with the things the Bible doesn't speak to. Whether it's formal membership in the church, or how to build church facilities, or how to use technology, or how to set up a church nonprofit, or how to parent your children. There's very few things said about parenting. Lots of books written in Christianity, very few verses on it in Scripture. So how do we deal with it? The early Protestants gave us language for that too. They said the following. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. In other words, what they're saying is is that you, you have to exercise wisdom. We should do so, exercise wisdom according to the general rule of the word. So the word doesn't tell me how to do everything, but the word teaches me how to be wise. And then once I 
apply that wisdom according to the general rule of the word, I know how to answer certain questions, which sometimes requires the general rule of the word, seek out a multitude of wise counselors, because I may not know how to handle it, but somebody else may be able to help me. Pray. Ask God for wisdom. Seek out the word. The more you come to know him and his character, the more you surround yourself with people who know him and his character, the more you ask him for wisdom and know his word, the easier it will be to answer those questions with wisdom. So the Bible doesn't tell us everything, but it does tell us the main things we need to know for life and doctrine. And it does give us a general pattern of wisdom to follow. Second, sola scriptura requires that Scripture interprets Scripture. You hear that? Scripture interprets Scripture. We believe the Bible is God-breathed and authoritative and must be coherent and non-contradictory. So the Bible's clear and has its authority, its own interpretation. So if Jesus said that Moses meant X, guess what that meant Moses meant? X. Jesus is not wrong about what Moses said. You guys got that? Jesus said Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And yet, evangelical scholars in all kinds of Christian colleges across the country question whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Well, if Moses didn't write it, then Jesus is a liar. Move on. Drop the whole Christian college gig and move on to something worth your time. If Paul said Jesus meant why, then Jesus meant why. Now, not all Scripture is equally clear, and we let the clearer passages help us interpret the unclear passages. And I realize it requires a lot of study and work. It requires the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to help us with this. But here's the thing. The main things are clear. And even the things that are unclear, the scholars agree that those things are unclear. So we're even clear on the fact that we all agree on what's unclear. You follow me on that? So that our speaker this weekend said, hey, listen, I spent eight years and wrote 1,200 pages on the book of Revelation. It's commentary. That's a lot of work. But I might be wrong. It's not worth causing disunity in the church over. I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. Because there's some stuff in here that's not clear. The main things in the Bible are clear. Third, sola scriptura encourages us to look to teachers, current or past, for helping us understand the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, sort of conclude here. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in other words, Christ was giving out this grace. And what is this grace? He goes on. I'm not going to read all of this text because I don't have time to unwind it all. But go down to verse 11. He starts to tell what he gives. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, Christ gave the church 
pastors and teachers. I'm not going to wind all these gifts. I just want to get to the last two. Pastors and teachers. Some scholars argue that's a hyphenated phrase, pastor, teachers. I'm not sure. Christ gave the church these gifts. Why? So that the members of the body would be trained up into maturity and would, would speak the truth and love to one another so that none of us are carried away by false doctrine so that we all grow into maturity in Christ. You, you follow that? Are we all teachers in some sense? Yes, we all speak the truth and love to one another. But there are also teachers in Scripture in a special sense. Men Christ gave to the church for the purpose of equipping the rest of the saints so that they might speak the truth and love to one another to mature the body of Christ. So when we say sola scriptura, we don't mean that there, we don't look to teachers, current or past. We look to them because Christ gave these gifts to the church to not look to historic teachers of the Bible or to contemporary teachers of the Bible is to take Christ's gift and throw it away. It's to say to Jesus, I don't need your gift. Christ gave teachers of the church and elders are told, elders are told in Titus 1.9 that they are to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's what they do. He gave them to help us all understand the word. I believe that every Bible can, uh, excuse me, every believer can read and understand their Bible because it's clear and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. With that said, and every Christian does some teaching in the fact they speak the truth and love to one another. But with that said, that doesn't mean that you do not need teachers in the church. Doesn't mean that. Christ gave teachers to the church. So let's all practice a little humility and learn from the great Bible teachers, past and present. To, to not do so is just pure, unmitigated arrogance. As an important aside, we're not all called to be teachers of the word. You know that, right? In the formal sense. We're not all called to that office. James in James 3.1 says, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. Now, now, he doesn't say all of you should be teachers or most of you should be teachers. He says, not many of you. How many is not many? Not many. What does it say in the Greek? Not many. That's it. Not many. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. For those who teach incur a stricter judgment. There's a special place for this office. So when we say school of scriptura, we don't mean that we end pastors and teachers. We don't mean that we don't learn from other folks how to understand the scripture. We must have those who are set apart to this gloriously arduous task of understanding and teaching the word for the benefit of Christ's church. We need to set men apart who will apply themselves to study the word, to learn the languages, and to teach. So here's what your elders are asking you as a church to hold us to the standard of. Hold us as a church to the standard of sola scriptura. This is our authority. When we move away from this in any ministry we do, whether it's preaching the word or counseling, whether it's women's ministry or men's ministry or our grace groups, when we move away from the authority of the word, you come back at us and tell us, you are the ones who called us a sola scriptura. We believe this is God's word. Paul was clear what you're supposed to do in season, out of season. Preach the word. Get back to your studies and come back with something worth us hearing. Our charge is clear. Our charge is clear. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, we ask that we would be a church that appeals to, that knows that our source of authority is your word. That we come back again and again to that great Protestant understanding of sola scriptura, that understanding which has reigned throughout the history of your Bible, from Moses to the prophets to Christ to the apostles to many faithful men throughout the centuries, on down to the Protestant reformers and to us, that you have spoken, that your word is breathed out by you, and that it is sufficient and clear and authoritative and necessary, that it is not able to err and that it contains no errors. May we come back again and again and again to the fact that your word is what we need for salvation and for sanctification and for the ministry. May we not veer from it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.